My name is Matt, and I serve as one of the pastors here. If you weren't with us last week, I almost died on stage. (laughs) And all these people out here just laughed at me. Bad, bad Samaritans. No, I'm working it out with my counselor. It's all good. It's all good. No, so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, So excited uh, about today. And and again, as Kondo said, those of you who are with us uh, for the very first time, so good to have you here. Thank you for trusting us uh, with your morning. Um, As we dive in today, if you would like to have a copy of the uh, scriptures in your hand, um, we'd love to hand you a Bible. There's some guys that are going to come up the aisle. If you'd like to have a Bible, you can just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. We'll have the scriptures on the screen, but you can also hold a Bible if you want. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home with you as a gift and a way of saying thanks for being here uh, today. Well, this week we are continuing with part two of our series, The Truth About. And our hope in this series is, take, is to take a practical look at some of the big conversations and big subject that are taking center stage of the global and the national conversation. And our goal in the series is, is to take these subjects and look at them through the lens of Scripture. What does Scripture have to say? What does Jesus have to say about things like guns and violence and politics and race, refugees, our rights. We want to imagine a conversation where we're leaning in and Jesus is sitting here with us and we could ask Jesus about any number of these things and he would say, well, the truth about and fill in the blank for us. And see, we believe we're sitting in the middle of a cultural storm, a great cultural storm where the waves are getting a little higher and the winds are picking up. And we don't see any signs of this thing subsiding anytime soon. The volume keeps getting turned up a little louder. The tension a little tighter. And we want to answer the questions. How should we act? How should we as the church, how should we as Christians, as Jesus followers, respond? What would Jesus have us to do in these situations? Just to recap a little bit from last week, uh, we looked and looked back at uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians and the number of uh, promises and blessings and the truth about our identity and who we are in Jesus. Where the Apostle Paul writes out three chapters of this is who you are. If you follow Jesus, this is who you are. This is what he says about you. These are the promises. These are the truth. In him, you have all power. In him, you have every spiritual blessing. In him, you are sealed. You are guaranteed a place at the table. In him, you have full and complete access to the Father. And then we looked into Chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you to please live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Based on all of these promises and all of these blessings and all of these identity pieces over here, may your life be worthy like a scale. The weight of your life bring balance so that we wouldn't just partake of these blessings someday far off, off, but we would pull from them here today and now and let them be an active part of the ways in which we live. And to do that, we talked about being completely humble and gentle and patient, 
bearing with one another in love, and making every effort, make every effort, every effort, as far as it depends on me, make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That there'd be this urgency that we would run towards unity, that we wouldn't sit back passively and wait for it to happen and wait for someone to invite us into it. But no, we would run into it and we would pursue it and we would be these peacemakers, people willing to step in and stir things up a little bit for the sake of unity and the sake of bringing peace. And we want to have these conversations and we want to lean into these things as a church and as a community because we want to take steps forward in our spiritual growth and in our maturity as it says in chapter 4, verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We want to push ourselves in a way and face some of the challenging conversations because we don't want to be like infants tossed back and forth in the waves. We don't want to be swept up by the wind and every wind that blows through, especially the ones from deceitful people, people who don't care about us, people who don't care about you, about me, people who have built a system of profit that is fueled by fear. people who are leading us away from Jesus. We realize there's a tension in these conversations. And even now, we can sit on the edge of our seats with this tension of feeling like, oh, if he says this, I hope he doesn't say this. What if this happens? What if they talk about this and we want to lean in and say, hey, let's be unifiers. Let's not be people that tear each other apart, but let's come around the unity of the Spirit and process through what Jesus has to say to us about these things. Well, 18 months before we moved to Warsaw, uh, we moved homes in the Atlanta area. Uh, the home that we had lived in for about 12 years. Um, it was great. We loved it. It's, Eric and I uh, got married and, and we're in this house together and started our family and kids and the whole thing. Lots of memories, amazing place. But it was older. I mean, it was, it was 50, 60 years old, six, over 60 years old by the time we moved out. And as I've shared before, it had some issues. There were some things that were sort of falling apart, and we even struggled in selling this place. But once we finally did and were able to uh, move on from it, we purchased a house in this, this nice neighborhood about 30 minutes north, uh, further north of where we were in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. And it was great. It was this great neighborhood and they had this community swimming pool and basketball courts and this super intense homeowners association that I'll tell you about another time. Um, And the amazing thing about this was it was a brand new home and it was bigger than the home we had moved from. So to come from a house that was 60 years old and we were starting, you know, to feel the walls kind of coming in on us, to go to a brand new place that was just a couple months old that had all these warranties and things around. It was like unbelievable. I felt like the king of the world. And so moving day comes and we're there and we're loading up the house and the moving trucks in the driveway. And a woman pulls up and asks to see the owner. So I go out and introduce myself and she says, hi, um, I work for a home security uh, company. I noticed you're, you're moving in today. Wow, what a, 
What a beautiful place. Um, I was actually just down the street talking to your neighbor um, about this really great system we have, a limited time offer, and, and would love to sit down and talk to you. And I know today's not the day, but would love to schedule a time next week that we could come and sit down and talk about this. And, and I thought, well, I've, I've never had a security system before. And, but I mean, yeah, it's, I, I, if my neighbor's getting it, maybe I should think about it. I, I don't know. So she, yeah, sure. Come back next week. And so she did. So she came in, she sat down at the kitchen table, started to lay out her pamphlets and brochures and things. And she said, okay, we have this great system. It's pretty basic. It's like $99 installation, $19.99 a month, you know, really simple. You know, you'll like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. She goes, but hey, real quick, before we, we move on, I'd love to tell you, we also have this new digital system that's coming out, and, and it's, oh my goodness, it's really, really cool and way advanced, you know, so much better than this other thing, and, you know, it's so much more safe, and oh, this, this beautiful home, I, you know, I'd really like for you to get the, the, the most, you know, protection that you could get. Yeah, yeah, of course, and, you know, thieves have figured out they can just cut the phone line, and, and you know, psh, the alarm system's no good. This one's powered by a cell phone, and it's so great. It has all this, you know, smart home technology. It's powered by an app, to which I was like, you had me at app. Like, come on, let's go. Let's keep hearing some more about this. So, you know, we're going around the house, and she's just commenting on things. She, we're going through, and she's saying, oh, wow, what a, you know, what a beautiful dining room. This is, this is so nice, and, and oh, is that an iMac? Those are, those are so nice and expensive, and you, you should, gosh, definitely want to protect those things, and oh, these, these beautiful kids. You don't ever want anything to happen to the kids, and it's just like, oh, you're right. You're, you're so right. Like, what do we need to do? And, you know, I'm getting a little bit more anxious and a little bit more worked up. And so we're going around and she says, well, you know, we can do this door and this door and this thing and this glass break system and panic button. You know, it's a little bit more than the introductory thing, but not a whole lot, but it's, it's a pretty good deal. I said, that sounds, that sounds great. But one question, what, what, what about our basement? Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you mentioned the bit. Ba- yeah, let's go downstairs. Let's look at the basement. So we go downstairs and we look, and it wasn't finished, but it had stuff stored in it. She goes, wow, well, you got some stuff down here. We definitely have to protect your stuff. And, and oh, the stairs, you know, go upstairs to those beautiful children of yours. I mean, I think, I think we should secure the basement. I think that would be wise. And, and, you know, those windows being low to the ground, if the kids were to unlock them, you know, somebody could just lift them and, and climb through. And I, what do we do about that? Well, you know, we put sensors on all, you know, all eight of the windows. We just put a sensor on all of them, you know, and they're like, you know, $20 a piece, no big deal. And we just throw them on and we do the door and then the stairway and we'll be great. And I think, well, if we're doing these windows, maybe we should do all the windows upstairs too. And, and you know, just let's, let's be smart about this thing. She's like, yeah, no, good point, good point. So, you know, she's just filling the thing out and I'm feeling my heart race a little bit more and, you know, just kind of working the thing out. So she sits down back at the table and she starts kind of writing up this, this proposal contract thing. And I see the $99 installation thing, you know, just go away. And, and the $750 installation thing, like, pop in. It's like all of a sudden $19.90 a month is gone, $59.99 a month. I'm like, okay. And, you know, just starting to, okay. And then I can see Erica sort of slide into the back of the frame of this scene. And she's just... So I say, hey, listen, um, you know, really appreciate you coming. Um, I'm going to need to talk to my wife about some of these things. And, you know, we make these decisions together and would love to just bring her up to speed on how great your system is and how important it is. 
And she goes, yeah, great, listen, but hey, if you could just check off on this one thing today, it's kind of a one-time offer. We have these cameras that I'd love to include that, you know, you put them outside, you can see your driveway, people come to the front door. You could be at your office and pull up the app on your phone, and you can see who's at your front door without even being home. She didn't know that I worked from home at the time and that my office was one step away from the front door, but I still thought this was really cool and maybe something... (laughs) to consider. So I thought, yeah, check the box. Let's, you know, let's, let's talk about the cameras too. Erica's just, I'm going to kill you. Like, get, get this woman out of here. So finally, you know, I tell the lady, listen, um, I'm going to need to call you in a couple days after we've had a chance to think about this. And she was, okay, well, please hurry, you know, limited time offer. We're actually installing your neighbor's house in a couple days. Would love to just be here and knock them both out at the same time, get you the best price. And so she leaves, and, you know, Erica's just kind of looking. She's like, ah, so what happened to this is not really going to cost us anything. I'm like, yeah, but it's so cool, and it has an app. And she's like, you don't need an app. We live in the safest neighborhood in Georgia. Like, this is so ridiculous. You've lost your mind. Uh, yeah, you're right. And then the doorbell rings, and the doorbell rings, and I go up, and here's this, you know, neighbor kid, and he's like, can I play with the kids? I'm like, see, this is the reason. Hoodlums are going to come to the door all the time. We need to have a panic button that we can press at any moment. You just never know. (laughs) So I go down the street. My my friend David, who lived down the street, was a a city policeman. I decide, all right, you know what? I bet he could give me some perspective. So I go down the street and kind of lay the whole thing out for him, and he's just kind of laughing about the whole deal. He goes, listen, this is a really safe neighborhood and and community and, and really family friendly. And, and, you know, aside from me, there's another city policeman, and uh, there's actually two deputy sheriffs that live in the neighborhood. We all bring our squad cars home, park them around the neighborhood, sometimes at the front, sometimes at the pool house. Uh, And then the HOA, they are really, really nutty about the whole neighborhood watch thing. So really, you can do whatever you want with your money, but I I think you're going to be fine. So I I can feel like some peace coming back. I think, okay, so that that sounds sounds good. I'm going to call her back, and I'm going to tell her, no thanks. So I pick up her card, pull out my phone, dial her number, no joke, and uh, starts ringing. The number you are trying to reach is no longer in service. What? We've just been home alone. This woman was casing our house. She's not even real. The security's not real. They're going to steal everything. All right, I need to book another security system. Maybe David (laughs) could like stake out in our driveway for a few days because now I'm really freaking out. And Erica's just shaking her head. And it's crazy what we'll do when fear and paranoia sets in, right? We can lose our grip and we can start to lose our way just a bit. And we can find ourselves so far removed from the things that we know to be true and the things that we actually can stand firm in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Kings chapter 10. It's in the Old Testament towards the beginning. And we're going to be talking about King Solomon. He's a Jewish king, uh, heir to the throne, appointed by his father, King David, under instruction from the Lord. And um, if you remember a bit about the, the story of the Israelites, they were in captivity in Egypt. They were in Egypt as captives of slaves to the pharaohs. And it wasn't until God sent Moses in to confront Pharaoh and deliver his people. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, 
wove it, you know, that whole thing. Like, that point, God calls his people out. 400 years the Israelites spent in slavery. And then they're delivered, and they wander through the wilderness, and they're delivered to the promised land. And then they live through a period of 400 years of judges. So they have God with them, present in this cloud hovering above them. And then these judges who are kind of helping keep rule and control and, and peace over things. But the Israelites are saying, oh, we want a human king. Give us a human, a human king. We really want a human king. All the other nations have a human king. We really would like to have a human king. And God says, no, no, no. We, I want you to be different. I want you to trust me and my presence with you. You know, we really want a human king. And so God says, okay, we'll give you a king. And it starts off with Saul, and he's just a bit of a mess. And then God appoints uh, anoints David, who becomes king. And, and so David is king, and, and as David is king, he comes up um, with this plan to build this temple for God. Now, what we know about David, David had a lot of missteps, a lot of mistakes. But what was true about David is he had this really, really intimate understanding of repentance and what it meant to be in right relationship with God, what it meant to be wholeheartedly devoted to God and trusting God with all things. And so even in his missteps, he'd come back to God in humility and seek out repentance. And so out of his love and his devotion to God, he, he, he comes up with God to create this plan for this temple, this place for God to dwell, the place for worship and sacrifice. And then he gets to the end where he's finished and he goes, all right, I think we're ready to build. And God says, no, actually, David, you're not going to build. You're coming to the end of your reign. I want you to appoint Solomon, your son, to be the king, and he is going to be the one that builds this temple. So in 970 BC, Solomon is handed the reins to the kingdom. And there's this beautiful passage in First Chronicles where David's kind of handing over the reins of the kingdom to his son, and he directs all of his leadership and all of the people Hey, I want you to serve Solomon. I want you to, to honor him in the way that you've honored me. And, and all throughout it, you know, he's just handing things over. He's handing over the wealth and the keys to the kingdom and the plans for this temple. And he goes through it detail by detail. And throughout this, he keeps telling Solomon, Solomon, follow the commands. Acknowledge God. Serve him with a wholehearted direction and a willing mind. Listen, you need to know about this God. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows the desires of your heart. But if you will seek him, you will find him next to you. If you forsake him, he'll reject you. Now the Lord has chosen you for this time and for this task. Be strong and do the work. And it says later in the scriptures that Solomon prospered. The Lord highly exalted Solomon and bestowed on him royal splendor that no king in Israel had ever experienced. And then one night God appears to Solomon and says to Solomon, ask me for anything. And Solomon says, okay, I'd like to have wisdom and knowledge to lead these people. And God's so impressed with his ask, the maturity of this young man's ask that he says, wow, you didn't ask for a long life. You didn't ask for wealth. You asked for knowledge and wisdom granted. And in fact, I am going to bless you with riches, and I am going to prosper you and pour out favor on your kingdom. God is pleased with Solomon. 
and his kingship starts in a really good note. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 10. There's a visit from the queen of Sheba. She hears about Solomon's fame and his wisdom and all of the favor of the Lord on him and decides, I've got to go check this out. So chapter 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So she hears about the fame and the wisdom and says, well, let me go see for myself. She comes in and she starts throwing all these hard questions at Solomon. Solomon receives her, answers all of her questions with ease. No problem. Got it. Easy. Next. And she's totally blown away. We pick up in verse 4. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built and the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I've heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told to me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I have heard. Listen, I've heard about you and I've heard amazing things, but this, oh my goodness, amazing, far, like not even half, wow, unbelievable. So impressed with the wisdom and the riches and the favor of the Lord on your kingdom. Verse 8, how happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. I mean, this place is amazing and you're an unbelievable king and leader and you have all this wisdom. How happy your people must be. And then she finishes her statement to the king in verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. I get it. I get why he made you king. All of this, all he's given you, all these blessings, he's given it to you to maintain justice and righteousness. These two words in the Hebrew scriptures, justice and righteousness, are mishpak and tzedakah. And they have deep, deep meaning in the Hebrew language and basically, in essence, mean everything is in its right place. Things are found in their proper order. The poor are being cared for. Those being wronged have someone to advocate and speak up for them and to argue their case. You, Solomon, have been giving power to maintain justice and right living, to look out for the well-being of your people, especially those who struggle. This wisdom given to you, this blessing, is so that you can guide those who need it most. And it's as if the Queen of Sheba sees this gift that the Lord has given him, sees it pouring out of him, and sees the power of those things coming together. And isn't this true of us? Our greatest gifts, the things that flow out of us, the gifts from God, 
Last week we talked about being humble and poor in spirit and, and coming to the table saying, I don't have anything to offer. The things that I have to offer come from my heavenly Father. And, and these gifts that fill us up that He's given us with. When we are walking in sync with the gifts and the blessings and they are pouring out and they're flowing out of us, we often find our deepest joy and our deepest satisfaction and this feeling as if things are right in the world. We're connecting with the purpose and the value that God has placed in us in the ways in which we are living out our lives, especially those times that we give to those who are in great need. And the Queen of Sheba looks around and sees and experiences the wisdom and of Solomon and instantly thinks, I get it. I know why you've been blessed. I know why you're so wise. So you can lead this great nation in justice and righteousness. You can look out for the well-being of everyone. Oh, how your people must be so happy. And if you read this story in isolation, this is how it stands. However, I don't think that the author of First Kings wants this to be the takeaway to his audience. You see this story and this observation of Solomon and his wisdom and his leadership and how happy his people must be. It comes sandwiched in between a couple of chapters that tell a much different story. If you will, flip back with me to chapter 9, verse 15. Here is the account of the forced labor... King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. Wait, wait, wait. Solomon built the temple of God with forced labor? another word for forced labor. Slavery. Solomon built the temple of God using slave labor? I mean, why, why does this matter? What's the significance? We see and hear about slaves all throughout the scriptures. Well, the reason this would matter, especially to a Jewish audience, is because Solomon is a Jewish king. And just a few generations before him, what are the Israelites up to? They're slaves in Egypt being used by the pharaohs as forced labor to build palaces and temples. And now in building the temple to honor the God who delivered them out of slavery, they are using slaves. Solomon is using slaves to build a temple to God, the same God who liberated his ancestors. Solomon has forgotten where he's come from. Solomon has forgotten the story. I find it so interesting that one of the last recorded statements David gives to his son as he's transitioning power to him and he's talking about this building of the temple. He says to Solomon, be strong and do the work. And yet what's one way to speed up the process and save your resources is to enslave others and have them do the work. They were liberated from an oppressive empire. And now they are building an empire that is oppressing people. I think what the author wants us to see is that there's a new Pharaoh. And his name is Solomon. 
He became so rich and so powerful, he's starting to lose control and focus. He's losing his way. He's forgetting the story of his people and the pleas of his father and the direct commands from God. Chapter 11 tells us about Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines and how God told the Israelites, do not marry foreign women because they will bring in their foreign gods and tempt you to bring foreign worship into my kingdom. And yet Solomon totally ignores this. And in the most ridiculous season of the Old Testament bachelor, he doesn't weed out any of the contestants. He just keeps handing out roses. I mean, it's like he goes, Oprah, you get a rose and you get a rose and you get a rose and let's load up some more limos of women and get them in here. And sure enough, Solomon begins to worship false gods, false idols. He sets up places of sacrifice around Israel and Jerusalem for his wives. And God becomes disgusted with Solomon. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 15. Here is the account of the forced labor of King Solomon, conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Do you know what Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer are? They're military bases. Solomon is using slave labor to build the temple of the Lord, his palace, the walls around Jerusalem, and military bases. Why? Because when you're building an empire and you're filling up the storehouses to overflowing and you're stacking things up, you begin to lose your way and you have to start protecting things. And more and more and more of your resources begins to go towards defense. Jump ahead, chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities, those three cities we mentioned, and also with him in Jerusalem. Now, a chariot back in these days was equal to a tank. It's like tanks and airplanes. Horses and chariots gave you an absolute clear military advantage. In the story of slaves and blessing and wisdom, there is a nod to Solomon building up his weapons. Verse 28. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. And again, to a Jewish audience, this would have been, what? Are you kidding me? The empire that oppressed us? We know all about chariots and horses We know all about what those things do and what they are. When Pharaoh woke up from letting God's people go, what did he do? He sent the horses and chariots after them to chase them down. And I'm sure they were quite familiar with their power and the fear that must have come up in them, seeing them coming up on their heels. And yet here is their king importing the very weapons of an empire that oppressed them into their own land. Verse 29, they imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also, 
exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Solomon is building military bases. He is stockpiling, importing weapons, and now he is exporting weapons to surrounding kingdoms. But wait, wait. Solomon just built this temple for God. And he's making sacrifices to God. The, the queen of Sheba saw it with her own eyes and complimented on him. He still possesses this wisdom, and the queen was amazed by what she saw and experienced. And see, it's as if the author plants that in the middle of the story to say, hey, while things look really good on the surface, the truth is things are beginning to erode from the inside. And just in case this feels like a bit of a stretch, I'd like you to look at verse uh, 14 in chapter 10. It's the very first verse after the Queen of Sheba story. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. 25 tons of gold. That's amazing. Worth about $850 million a year. Impressive. But that's not the point. As we know, the number 666 has significance. It is the mark of the beast. And again, to a Jewish audience, this would have set off all kinds of flares and red flags because this number represented direct opposition to God. He may be going through the religious motions, but his focus, his grip, his actual ability to maintain justice and righteousness is slipping, if not completely gone. Somewhere in the story, he goes from building a temple and honoring God to building his own empire. And in the process, he becomes an oppressor. He loses the ability to do the very thing that the Queen of Sheba calls out. And later, the prophets confront Solomon. God is disgusted with you. Your feasts that you're having, yet oppressing the poor and holding down the powerless and still having your religious feast, God wants to throw up. Let's pull out for a moment. The Bible is primarily written by people who are part of small minority communities under the rule of major empires. It's a theme repeated throughout Scripture. It starts with the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, and by the time Jesus comes around, it's the Roman Empire. These empires and their horses and their chariots and their military often made life completely miserable for the people that they ruled. And much of Scripture are written by these people who lived with this humiliation and this powerlessness. And the Bible is relentless in its sharp rebuke of the abuse of power. It is a major theme of the scriptures. What will you do with your wealth, your power, your weapons, your influence? Will you use them to care for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant among you? Will you remember the story of deliverance? Will you remember your salvation, your freedom, your rescue? Will you remember the story of your blessing? Are you going to extend Blessings to those around you. The blessings you've received, are you going to pour them back out? Are you going to extend grace or will you forget the grace and the blessing? 
for those who are sitting in the seat that you once occupied. See, the author of Solomon's story wants to show us when you forget who you are, when you forget where you come from, your kingdom will erode. And oftentimes, from the inside. So what happens to Solomon's story? The kingdom splits up. It begins to erode and does erode from the inside. The prophets rise up. You've become corrupt. This whole thing is going to fall. And eventually the Babylonians come in. They attack. They destroy Israel, Jerusalem. And they cart off a bunch of Israelites in captivity. And it's in exile that these Israelites begin to capture and to write these stories. Being exiled in Babylon, they write these stories that we now know as the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And these stories have been passed on to remind this is how we lost our way. This is how the kingdom rotted from the inside. The story of Solomon is a warning. It's a warning against the abuse of power, a warning against building earthly empires. And this is why when Jesus came, he begins to lead and to teach and to open up this entire new system, an entire new way of life. He places ultimate value on loving God and loving people. He calls us to care for the least of these. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with defense, nothing wrong with protection, nothing wrong with safety. But there is a clear warning to be careful that we don't spend so much time protecting and defending what we've accumulated that we forget those in need. Jesus is executed by the most powerful nation and military on the planet. And he does not fight back. He does not fight back with violence. And he doesn't let them take his life. He gives up his life. I was talking to Mike Taylor this week about some of the medical realities of crucifixion and how they would break the, those being crucified legs and that would kind of be the last thing that would cause them to release and end the torture and cause them to die. Jesus' legs were not broken. They did not take his life. He gave it Jesus in his meekness and his humility, this great power under control, he gives his life and he puts on this new way, puts it on display for the world. He fixes everything, the problems, the great divide between man and God. He fixes it through humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And he invites us to do the same. There's a psalm that points to competing sources of trust and security. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And here's the hard pill for us to swallow here this morning. We as Americans often miss the significance of these stories and passages because we now live in a time where we are the ones with the chariots. We are a massive global military superpower. We are armed as a nation and as a people more than any other people or nation on the planet. 
And obviously the world is a scary and dangerous place. And again, there's a proper place for defense, protection, and safety. It's not a thing of, oh, we shouldn't have a military. No, 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 no. No. We need some protection. But that's not the major point the author is making here about King Solomon or that the prophets that rose up after him. It's a warning of what happens in our hearts when we become addicted to fear and paranoia. When a fear sets in and an obsession to safety, weapons, and fortification takes up our best energies, we are out of line with who Jesus has called us to be. These things need to have their proper place. Our trust needs to be realigned and our best energies and focus needs to be about serving those in need, being loving, being gentle, being humble, being patient, and being people that are running after unity. Right now, we're in the middle of an election cycle that has a number of our potential presidents promising to strengthen our military. And we already have one of the most powerful militaries on the planet. Just last night, some of the Republican hopefuls spoke about their desire to resume torture on our enemies. A direct quote, I'd bring back waterboarding and a hell of a lot worse. Forgive the French, or to be fair, I guess I should say the New Yorker. This is a promotion of fear and of paranoia that is not healthy. I watch daily as we post our pictures of our guns and our articles about terrorists and the feeling that the government is going to clamp down and take away our rights. And I am afraid that we are starting to lose our way. As the waves get a little higher and the winds of deceitful people blow a little stronger and as the fear and tension turns up a little bit more, we look and sound a lot like I did when I sat with this woman in the home security situation. Yeah, give me some of that. Wait, give me some more. Can I get some, can we get every door and every window? Let's lock the whole thing down. And in the midst of sitting in this home for one week, this blessing that we were given, the whole reason we moved up to this home was to open up room for foster care for our family. And one week into the thing, I am getting mesmerized by the stuff and the newness and I want to lock it down and fortify it. When presented with a little fear and paranoia, I can start to lose my way. Jesus, when he came to earth as a man, he had access to every bit of power and blessing imaginable. But Jesus did not consider his rights with God something to be grasped. Rather, he gave up his life. He's the commander in chief of the most powerful military in the universe. He could have called down an army of angels to deliver him at any point, but he gave up his rights. He submitted to the will and plan of his father. He defeated sin at the cross and death coming alive out of the tomb. And he's one. And if you've trusted your life with Jesus, you are guaranteed to share in his promises and his inheritance. 
And he left the work of the gospel in our hands. And he's called us to be different. He wants us to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner among us. He wants us to spread his message of hope and love. Jesus very clearly calls us to love and to pray for our enemies. He says in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, great job loving the people who love you. Congratulations. Everyone can do that. I want you to be different. Go out and love and pray for the people who persecute you. If you're a follower of Jesus sitting here today, you have been given a wealth of blessing and promises. And my question is, living in a world of chaos and terror, are you going to let fear and paranoia take root in your life? Or are you going to trust in the name of the Lord our God? This week, I would challenge you to take inventory of your heart and take time to gauge where your trust lies. I'd imagine with whatever fear or tension you are sitting with today, that there's someone out there more terrified than you, someone who's truly running short on hope and blessings. How could you enter into their life, into their story and be a blessing? How could we lean into the scary waves just a little bit and make some waves of our own? May you find yourself trusting in a God who is worthy of being completely trusted. May you find yourself safely in his hands. May you not fear, but find yourself near to a God who will never leave you. Let's pray. Father, this is hard stuff. We do, we live in a scary place and a scary time. And the volume keeps getting louder and the tension keeps getting turned up. But Jesus, we believe you have called us to be different. To be different for the sake of the gospel and different for the sake of your kingdom. So God, I beg of you, please lead us to be people who trust in you and you alone. God, move us to be people who cast away any kind of trust in horses and chariots and trust only in the name of the Lord, our God. In Christ's name, amen.